0: hey there welcome to another edition of the livewire house party i'm luke burbank we are going to be solving some mysteries this week first up we're going to be talking to roman mars and kurt Colstead from the 99 invisible podcast these guys are experts in telling the surprisingly fascinating stories behind like everything from power grids to uh, drinking fountains uh then we're going to talk to writer shayla lawson She's going to shed some light on the magic and power of black girls, which she celebrates in her fantastic essay collection, This Is Major, notes on Diana Ross, Dark Girls, and Being Dope. And in case you were wondering, whatever happened to that band Men at Work from Australia, where you're going to hear the very talented and charming lead singer, Colin Hay, who's going to play us a song. That's the plan. We've got a great show for you. It gets started right after this. <laughs> the listeners can't see this, but I did not put any
4: product
0: in my hair this week, so I've got a whole unnatural thing happening. I like curly. That's my cool new nickname.
4: Yeah, and I, that means I get to be Mo or Shep. <laughs> I'd probably be Shep.
0: Hey, are you a fan of mysteries? Mm-hmm, very much so. Yeah. Yeah. What are you into?
4: I like who done it's me done it. <laughs> we done it. I like any
0: amount of dunning it.
4: Yeah, I like those podcasts where, like, that oh, yeah. show Dead Eyes, where they kind of invent something that's not even really a mystery. You know, like, this guy's just mm-hmm. trying to figure out why uh, Tom Hanks fired him from a movie 20 years oh, ago. Oh, right. It's great. But they're they're pretending to solve this mystery, but mm-hmm. really it's just about something else. It's about, like, humiliation in Hollywood. I love all—I love I love puzzles. I love mysteries.
0: I loved those Encyclopedia Brown books when I was a kid. Oh, uh, yeah. Electric clocks don't tick. I could never solve any of the mysteries, but— I- I still just like like one time I solved one involving a hard-boiled egg.
4: Oh, good job!
0: Hey, uh, are you ready to do our little radio show?
4: Heck, fire! Yes, I am.
0: Molly, are we recording?
2: We are recording.
0: Excellent. All right, take it away, Elena.
4: From PRX, it's Livewire, recorded from our actual houses. Welcome to the LiveWire House Party. This week, Roman Mars and Kurt Kolstett from the 99% Invisible podcast. Writer Shayla Lawson and music from Colin Hay. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello. And now, the host of LiveWire, Lou. Uh, thank you pump so much, Elena Passarello. Pump Yo, pump it, pump. With pump a little help
0: from Technotronic in this the back.
4: This is Technotronic.
0: <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We have a great show in store for everybody this week. Of course, we like to start things off by asking the audience a question. Uh, this week, we asked the audience, What is a mystery that you can't seem to solve? And we are going to get to some of those responses in a moment. First, though, Elena, what is a mystery that you can't seem to solve?
4: My biggest mystery of the universe, along with, like, what happened to D.B. Cooper and who's mm-hmm. in Grant's tomb or whatever, is what wh- what is it going to take for me to get my man, David, to admit that I am cool? <gasps> he will not say that I am cool. And he is so... He's I like, want to
0: mention to the listeners that Alana is currently wearing a cat sweater, which I don't feel like is doing any huge favors what? in the coolness
4: department. Th- the thing, I think this is kind of cool. But he's like... Like, when, like, I can't take him shopping because he says everything looks good on me. Like, he's completely, mm. uh, and he's, so he's such a cheerleader. Everything that I work on, he's, like, really supportive. He's so nice. But, like, I'll be like, I'm kind of cool, though, right? And he'll be like, <laughs> just, like, purse his lips. Or, like, or sometimes we will be talking about something, and I'll get this look on his face that is like him going, this is why you're not cool. Like I'll be talking about my cool ordering system for like where the keys go in the key rack and he'll just be like, he'll just (laughs) like, this look will come over his face, this is why you're not cool.
0: Look. I think we need that in our partners. Somebody, particularly you and I, you know, doing this show and other things where maybe you could start to get uh, maybe a little proud of yourself at times. It's, we need the people that we're with to really just let the air out of the balloon. Do you
4: think I'm cool? Absolutely! Ah, yes.
0: You were on LiveWare as a guest, and we thought you were so cool. We were like, <laughs> we got to work with this person. So tell your husband to put that in his pipe and smoke it.
4: I think. I mean, the fact that this cat sweater lights up, like, yeah. is cool. Like, just a cat sweater. Eh. Mm-hmm. But a cat sweater that lights up—that's that's the kind of coolness that I'm bringing. He's also—he's yeah. very cool. Like he, he is, dresses. So he's like
0: real leather jacket kind mm-hmm. of motorcycle guy. Yeah, he, he looks like. That's Kerouac. the problem is that his level of coolness is pretty elevated.
4: Yeah. Everybody thinks he's cool. Dogs think he's cool.
0: Yeah. Anyway.
4: The mystery that I can't
0: seem to solve, Elena, is (laughs) how people are capable of doing crossword puzzles. Oh! Like, I think I'm a reasonably smart person. I'm fairly well informed. And I cannot figure out what the clues are asking me to do. Right. Like, I... I'll get on an airplane, and I will find, like, a half-filled-out crossword puzzle (laughs) in, like, an Us magazine, and I cannot finish. Um. By the way, every answer is Mario Lopez. (laughs) And I still, like, I want to be one of those people that, like, on Saturday morning gets up and has a cup of coffee and gets the New York Times Saturday crossword puzzle and... I am
4: hopeless.
0: I, my brain is just not able to understand how to fill those things out.
4: It is a code. It's a language. The clues, it's like Jeopardy. Like sometimes the Jeopardy question will be in a category mm-hmm. that has nothing to do with the clue. Mm-hmm. You know, like it'll just be like a way for you to say like, what is the capital of Turkmenistan? Sure. But the category will be like potent potables. But that's what crossword puzzles are like too. It's, it's codified. And nobody well, can do the Sunday crossword.
0: It like, is a mystery to me. Oh. I'll tell you what. Hey, what are the listeners saying uh, are some mysteries that they can't seem to solve?
4: Here is uh, one from Chris that I'm assuming Chris put on like one of our social media platforms that's public because someone answered the mystery for Chris. Oh. So so Chris well, that's helpful. Chris's mystery is in the morning, I use the greeting good morning. In the afternoon, I use the greeting good afternoon. But what greeting should one use when the phone call recipient is in an unknown time zone? And more so, what greeting does one use right at noon? And then right after that, Paul Dickinson got back at Chris and said, Try hiya, cutie pie. That's an all occasion greeting.
0: <laughs> that sounds like a recipe for HR talking to somebody. <laughs> How about going with like Mr. Burns from The Simpsons? Just answer the phone, ahoy hoy. <laughs>
4: I'm gonna do like that Like you, now. you
0: put down your monocle and you pick <laughs> up the the telephono and you say, "Ahoy, hoy! How about that? That seems like that would apply to any time." <laughs> what else are the listeners saying? Are some uh, mysteries that they can't solve?
4: Oh, here's one from Phil. Phil's unsolvable mystery is raw toast just bread.
0: <laughs> <laughs> is
4: weed legal wherever Phil is checking in from
0: <laughs> Like the kind of thought you have maybe yeah. after a long sesh
4: that's a little bit of a bong hitter
0: yeah so once you toasted it, it's toast but before that is it is it just bread or is there any is there such a thing as raw toast untoasted toast
4: is a raw raisin a grape
0: huh these are, the, these are the questions that keep people up at night. <laughs> hey, let's invite our first guests over to the house party. They're, they're sort of gumshoes in their own way. Um, if the kind of mysteries that you're looking to solve are, like, why are sprinklers installed over a particular patch of gravel or why is Provo, Utah's municipal flag so weird? Mm-hmm. Uh, Roman Mars created the wildly popular 99% Invisible podcast to explore architecture and design and then it really took off. Vulture named it one of 10 nonfiction podcasts that changed the genre back in 2019. And Roman has now taken that sort of magic to the page along with 99% Invisible's digital director, Kurt Colsted in their new book, The 99% Invisible City, The Hidden World of Everyday Design. And I promise you will never look at your surroundings the same way again. Let's welcome Roman and Kurt to the House party.
5: woo Hello.
0: Um, Roman let me start with you were you always someone who like even as a kid was just really looking at things and trying to kind of understand the more subtle elements.
3: I would say yes, but not really like about architecture. That really didn't kick in until I was in my 20s. I was a person who was really into science, to tell you the truth. I, w- I really wanted to understand the way, you know, life worked on Earth. And that's where I spent a lot of my time. But I was, more than anything, I loved the sort of hidden stories of things. And then later on, I liked teaching those things. And, and, uh, and that's what I keyed into more than just the design of things. What
0: about you, Kurt? Were you obsessed with this stuff or did it just ramp up when you started working with Roman?
1: Um, like one of my earliest memories of playing as a kid was drawing a floor plan of this old brick farmhouse we lived in in upstate New York. So I don't know, like maybe that was a sign, um, but yeah, no. And then I studied architecture. So I've been, I've been looking at built environments for a long time now. (laughs) Does it become a thing though,
0: where between the podcast and now the book, You're like the Terminator. You have some overlay when you look at everything, where you're just sensing the (laughs) hidden design and the heat pattern, or that might be the predator. I mix up my Schwarzenegger vehicles.
3: (laughs) It 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 does have that effect. Like you, you can kind of there's a really legible information layer on the built world. You can kind of tap into, and it does take some discipline. And I can like. I can operate in the world without being distracted by every little thing, but um but but it's definitely more there than it ever has been before for me for sure.
1: Yeah, and I would I would shift the metaphor to uh Star Trek and say it's it like this book is is going to assimilate you into that way of thinking too. Like we're basically <laughs> infecting you with like and making you part of the hive mind that will then go out and look at the world differently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, outside of the
0: the obvious premise of kind of the things that we don't see, um, what was the organizing principle for this book? How did you both decide what was actually like going to be in here?
3: Uh, spreadsheets. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we've been doing the show for 10 years. And, you know, the show is about design in a very broad sense. It could be about a building, but it also could be about the origin of the song, Who Let the Dogs Out. You know, so... You know, we have lots of things that we, that we actually cover. And so one of the things that, um, we, we did in the very beginning or Kurt did actually, he just put up this huge spreadsheet of every story we've ever done and then stories that he's written for the website and then stories that were just kind of about cities that we were interested in because, uh, the organizing principle is that it's a field guide to kind of every city. It's like all the mundane objects in a city, no matter where you are, it's relevant and so it had to be an object that you could find in a city and then just rank them from one to five and then talked about it. And, and it was, it was really like Mm. one of those things that, that was a process, you know, I was like, you know, like as a radio person. Uh, for 20 years, I was like, let's just put on all the good stuff, you know, you know, like every good story. Mm-hmm. We should try to throw it in there. And he was definitely thinking in in minds of like the sort of semiotics and tropes of a field guide, and about like what goes to the next and goes to the next, so it has a reader experience as well. And he he was like the guardian of that mindset, and and I, I was always like, oh, let's do the thing where the explosion happens, you know, like you know, like a, that's how that's how I was uh, approaching it.
0: This is the Livewire House Party coming to you by way of PRX. I'm Luke Burbank at my house. Elena Passarello is checking in from her house, and we are talking to Roman Mars and Kirk Colstead from the Ninety-Nine Percent Invisible podcast. We've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Hey, Elena. What we're Mm -hmm. here to talk about is you keeping LiveWire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Welcome back to the LiveWire House Party from PRX. I am Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We're talking to podcasters Roman Mars and Kurt Kolstad about their book, the 99% invisible city, a field guide to the hidden world of everyday design. There is a uh, a bridge that I've been kind of fascinated with. I guess it's a railway overpass for years, um, but I'd never looked into it into the detail that, that, that you do in this book. It's kind of referred to as the can opener bridge. It's in Durham, North Carolina, and it really seems to be a collision of sort of municipal
1: um the buck passing i don't know what what's going on in north carolina there's this very dangerous bridge essentially everybody has kind of washed their hands of this thing right like the railroad company's like well we made it high enough the city's like well we've got utilities running underneath so we can't really like make the space underneath it lower by like lowering the street level and the city's like well we we put up signs and signs tell you how tall it is and we even put up flashing warning signs and the crazy thing to me about it is they've gone through all these iterations. They've put up all these different flashing signs, everything they can do to stop people from running under this bridge. And people still run their their trucks and, and caravans under this bridge and hit the bridge. And even as we were writing the book, they were doing this huge, like, millions of dollars uh, project to raise the bridge a bit. And they did it. They executed it and i was waiting to see like do we have to change the ending of this story but no oh. even with the yeah, bridge yeah. being higher trucks are still hitting it so it kind of it's this crazy thing at the middle of all of these different bureaucracies that shows you know how how people yeah can pass the buck endlessly around and you can put up as many signs as you want and people will still hit that bridge
0: i also think <laughs> it's a fascinating study in human behavior because they're one of the solutions was let's lie to people about what the clearance is. We're going mm-hmm. to tell them it's actually lower than it is, but what we humans do cleverly is assume that they're lying to us and that we can get away with a couple of extra inches. So it was an, <laughs> it was an ineffective strategy. Right. It's like speed limits. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So from uh, some not great design to something that is actually pretty genius design, which are revolving doors which you write about in this book, which are doing a lot of important work when it comes to like energy efficiency and things like that. Even though people like me tend to go to the conventional door when it's next to the (laughs) revolving door, why, why don't we like revolving doors? Why do they have to put signs up saying, don't use the conventional
3: door? (laughs) Roman. They feel bad. They feel bad to be inside of a little tiny, uh, like little space of air. And Mm. it's like, it's a, it's a human reaction that I think that one of the things about the show and I think about our point of view when it comes to design is, um, you know, your your feelings are not to be discounted. Like if they're not designed well enough for you to feel good about them, then pay attention to that. And hopefully designers pay attention mm. to that because design is supposed to be an empathic exercise. You know, they did find with little bits of, of nudging in the right direction, mainly it's about Energy efficiency, um, then we can convince even you, Luke, to go through the revolving door um, just because it, it is generally better for the environment. But you do need those side doors because one of the things they found about revolving doors is they are not good in terms of emergency. Like when you, if you mm-hmm. need rapid egress. Uh, queuing up for a revolving door is a very bad thing all of a sudden. It's a good thing most of the time and it's a very bad thing very quickly. And so mm-hmm. that is why there are always push doors, flanking revolving doors um, in, in most cases. And so um, so it's okay to feel the way you do, but I just like let you just like breathe deeply, just walk through <laughs> and will be okay.
0: Yeah, I don't even have any sort of low-level claustrophobia to blame it on. I'm just that impatient that I don't want to have to wait for the team aspect of this event. I just yeah. want to go do what yeah. I want to do. And you, you, you write about signage in this book, and I know you have both looked into it. Do signs work? Do people actually respond to
1: encouragement by way of of, of written notice, Kurt? Uh, yeah, they they do. They can, but also people use a lot of cues that aren't signs that are a lot subtler than signs to make their way through spaces. So a lot of it is how a space is designed. It can be even the color that's used, like the type of carpeting that creates a path. Um, So a lot of it is not so much reading the signs as as following the indicators. I mean, when I was traveling in in China years ago, I had the sudden realization that I can't, you know, at least in in Europe, I can, you know, I'm familiar with the alphabet. I might be able to piece things together. But in China, I really had to rely on other things for wayfinding because I could not read the Mm. characters. And that made me very aware of how arrows and colors and other things could be very helpful, too. (laughs)
0: Uh, Well, uh, speaking of of China and maybe folks from China who've come over to North America, uh, there's a really interesting part of the book talking about uh, developers in Vancouver, British Columbia trying to get, well, the government trying to get developers to accurately list the the names or the numbers of the floors in their buildings. They're like these buildings that have like 60 floors, but they're list they have 53 numbers. And like, what was, what's mm-hmm. been going on with that? And what are the implications?
3: Well, it's notable that we're talking about this on Friday the 13th, uh, which is oh, right. uh, 13 is one, one of those numbers right. that even sort of like cities that don't have a huge, you know, Chinese population, um, we will remove the number 13 from a floor because mm-hmm. people are superstitious. And, and they're mainly kowtowing to sort of people's superstition in terms of real estate. Like there are actual statistics mm-hmm. of like a, a a condo on the 13th floor is worth 4% less than one <laughs> listed on the 14th floor or something to that effect. I'm not quoting exact numbers here. But what, yeah. what's notable in, in Vancouver, like other Chinese characters, the, the numbers that sound like other words are particularly like avoided. Mm. Right. So like fours and eights
1: can sound like different uh, like things that could mean murder or death um, in Chinese. And so you you end up with these weird confluence of like between like 13 and four and eight. You might be missing or have it have sort of extra things in terms of parking spots, in terms of building floors. And finally, it, it was for fire safety reasons that the city was just like, no, you can't do this because our firemen <laughs> need to know what floor they're on. You can't just be skipping around. In some cases, they would skip like the entire set of, you know, 40 to, to 49. And it's like, no, no, <laughs> like in a, in a disaster situation, <laughs> yeah. we need to be able to 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 go in order and follow the numbers to get you know help people save save lives
0: do you feel like the nature of cities uh, might change because of the pandemic i mean they seem like they're really built around the idea that everybody has to go to a big building and sit near each other to get work done and i think we're as we're learning even during this chat that's not how it has to be anymore i mean are you writing a book about a version of cities that may not exist that much longer
3: I think one of the things that's great about the book being released right now is as people are kind of like could use as a guide to like how we got to now. There's a lot of things about what is a city and a city is really a conversation between top-down planners and bottom-up interventionists and it is never a fixed thing. It's this organism that you mentioned earlier and one of the things that when a thing like a pandemic happens, you really notice what kind of an organism it is. And, you know, you we noticed this sort of soft architectural interventions right away with like tape on the floor and plexiglass being put between us and the people who are serving us. I had no idea how many ways there were to affix plexiglass to things. It just popped yeah. up immediately. And I was like, wow, these people really figured something out really quickly. And it was really stunning. And And one of the things that kind of happens when you're in a city is we kind of have a solipsistic kind of um, narcissistic view of it. Like the city is the way it is. always has been when I arrived Mm -hmm. onto the city scene, like this is the way it is. (laughs) And so seeing all this rapid change sort of like makes you open to the idea that cities can and should evolve. And one of the big ones is like traffic space. So So like right now, closing down roads and experimenting with outdoor seating, because we need to be together, we need to, you know, these are things that make us human. And we're experimenting with this idea that roads aren't just things for cars. And the the truth of the matter is, they were never invented to be just for cars. Roads were always Mm. this multimodal, chaotic space that had people and cars and trolley cars and horses. And they were that way for, you know, thousands of years. And then 100 years ago Mm -hmm. we gave them to cars and we never looked back and now we're kind of Mm -hmm. clawing back a little bit of that space and so i think that it's sort of like it isn't so much that the book would have to change i mean we talk about that as evolution it's Mm -hmm. it's a good moment to experiment with cities because we believe like Mm -hmm. fully in the city is like a is this great thing that is worth experimenting it's like worth really challenging it as a citizen to make it the way you want it to be and Mm -hmm. right now we need the city to perform really differently than it, than it has for a long time. And it's great to watch it. Like, I, it needs to be nimble and uh, and and serve its people.
0: Uh, well, uh, Kurt and Roman, the, the book is, is just a really fascinating read. Uh, of course, not unlike the podcast. Uh, so great work on both of those projects. Thanks for taking the time to uh, chat with us today.
3: It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having us.
0: Thanks so much for having us. That was Roman Mars. And Kurt Kolstad joining us as part of the Portland Book Festival to talk about their new book, The 99% Invisible City, a field guide to the hidden world of everyday design. Hey, special thanks this week to Annette Masterson of Peoria, Arizona and Marquetta Morris of Portland, Oregon. Annette and Marquetta are part of the LiveWire member community and they are generously supporting our show with a donation each month, which we are very, very thankful for because it's how we are able to keep the show going. So a big thanks this week to Annette and Marquetta. This is the LiveWire House Party from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Passarello. As we do each week, we ask the LiveWire listeners a question. This week we ask, tell us about a mystery you can't seem to solve. Uh, Elena, what are the listeners saying are some things that are mysterious to them?
4: Uh, here's one from Keith that I think I might know sort of the answer to, if I can remember back to when I took, like, intro to cultural anthropology 25 years ago. But Keith wants to know, who decided to order the alphabet?
0: Like the order that the letters, yeah. oh my gosh. Because we order even... so
4: much of our life using alphabetical order. So like, right. why?
0: How did they decide it didn't start with Q?
4: Right. So you actually know the answer to this, Elena? I, I don't know if I can articulate it, but I remember uh, I took like an intro to linguistics anthropology class and the alphabet uh, was like this weird project from a lot of different cultures that were living like in and around Egypt thousands Mm. of years ago like canaanites and the phoenicians and then the greeks picked it up kind of later but they made symbols for sounds and then they also associated those symbols with numbers so the a b c d e f g which is not what it was back then anyway but like that order there was a numerical order like Mm. a was one and b was two or whatever but of course it didn't go in the direction that we wanted it to go now. And somebody added X at some point, but other people rejected the X. It's really it's really interesting. This is why David doesn't think I'm cool.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think it's cool that you know this stuff. More importantly, though, do you have to sing the alphabet song in your head when you're trying to figure out you know, where something goes when you're doing something alphabetically? Because if yeah. it's like B or an X situation, I got that. But yeah. if you get into the middle, if you get into... Elemento P territory. I'm hopeless.
4: You got to sing it. That's what that's what is for, right? Right. That song is also Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. That's one of my cool facts that I happen to know. Do you know who wrote it? Um, no. Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. What? Mm-hmm. Man. Isn't that great? Uh, yeah. You are cool. I mean, that's a
0: that's a cool <laughs> that's a cool thing to know. I
4: really just answered my own question on the show. Like, <laughs> yeah.
0: did you write these audience questions? What's another mystery that uh, one of our listeners has submitted?
4: Oh, I like this one from Brenda. How did someone or ones scale Mount Rushmore and carve faces into it? And more importantly, whose idea was that? (laughs) Which is, I think, the bigger mystery. The guy who carved Mount Rushmore was named, like, Gutsum Borglum. It's like this crazy last name, and he carved Stone Mountain in Georgia that I grew up at the foot of Stone Mountain. And he was, like, a, you know, really unwoke guy, uh, maybe like a eugenicist or something. Okay. But why, I agree with Brenda, like, why did somebody decide to carve those ding-dang heads into that mountain? (laughs) We should just do like the lady did in Spain and just, like, wipe out those faces and try to make it look more like a mountain again.
0: (laughs) The woman who was trying to, like, repaint a fresco or something and did just (laughs) the worst job of all time but hoped nobody would notice it in the, like, cathedral or whatever.
4: And David says that's his fam- favorite painting, and that's why he's cool.
0: Yeah, we should we should assign that person to Mount Rushmore. I think that thing needs yeah. a little freshening up. Probably, you're yeah. right. Yeah. All right. One more mystery from the Livewire listeners.
4: How about this one from Rachel? Do carrots actually promote better vision? Because I've been eating them for years, and my vision is still fuzzy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I noticed that uh because you know I tend to shop now in you know kind of i guess healthier grocery stores Mm. bougier grocery stores that it's in style to have the carrots now that still have the whole kind of bunny carrots and yet i am incapable of taking a bite out of one of those carrots and not saying what's up doc (laughs) forever so there's that
4: especially if you're in a hot tub because you could pretend you know when bugs bunny would be like in the back going
0: cut up some potatoes make it into a little soup Uh, This is the Live Warehouse Party. I'm Luke Burbank. That's Elena Passarello. Our next guest isn't afraid to investigate uncomfortable questions head on, uh, whether it's how to become Twitter famous or why certain neighborhoods have more Black Lives Matter signs than black people. The Kirkus Review called her latest essay collection a hilarious, heartbreaking, and endlessly entertaining homage to black women's resilience and excellence. The book is called This Is Major, Notes on Diana Ross, Dark Girls, and Being Dope. And we are so thrilled to have her join us as part of the Portland Book Festival. Shayla Lawson, welcome to the Live Wire house party.
2: Hi. Hey. Hi, Shayla. <laughs> How's it going?
0: Be- and I know, Of course, the minute dog. that we get started. <laughs> That's okay. The dog gets mentioned in the book. I feel like, yeah. uh, is this the Havanese? Yeah.
2: This is the Havanese. He's up to his antics.
0: Um, well, thank you for doing this today. I know that you were having some travel challenges getting back back to Brooklyn, but here you are. And this book is is really amazing um, and really eye-opening for somebody who looks like me to read. Um, uh, just to, to go into your experience and, and see the world in, in a way that would not maybe come as easily to me. I'm, I'm curious, though, at the very beginning of the book, you, you have a quote from Toni Morrison. Racists always try to make you think they are the majority, but they never are. That feels extremely timely in a moment where somebody who got, I don't know, five million fewer votes for president is trying to convince us that they're still in control. Like, why did you pick that quote, which obviously was chosen long before this moment in our shared kind of experience?
2: Um, I picked that quote because it's true. For such a long time, we have managed the history of America as the history of whiteness and associated the structure of America with uh, community building that was based on um, creating this concept of white people, um, it, mm-hmm. particularly because so many of the cultures that that migrated here um, would have at a certain point in time been considered at the abject. Um, you were not necessarily mm-hmm. always considered white people. So in these derivations of that, we keep moving the line um, farther and farther uh, into this binary of the idea that there is a real difference between um, one skin color and versus another in terms of their contribution to the history of America. So I wanted to focus my energy in figuring out what it would be like to try and write a book that decentered that story um, and started with using my personal life as a metric for that because as a, um, as a Black person, as a person of color living in the States, it's impossible for me to look at my own personal story and that not also be a record of whiteness. You know, So much of even when we think about mm-hmm. the title Black Lives Matter as a movement, um, that's not speaking to Black people. You don't need to tell Black people their lives matter. Um, so that was a lot of what I wanted to uh, manage within the book is looking at ways to turn what's typically uh, my role, as somebody who looks like me, which is kind of a best supporting actress role, and what happens if I become the lead character in my own story. In fact, like when I was living in Portland, uh, that was the first time that I thought about really the importance of shifting away from terminology that referred to to culture or ability or gender or or any kind of um, marker that we might exist under as a minority topic or a minority conversation. Um, And actually, Mm. I was listening to a radio broadcast in Portland on one of Portland's independent radio channels where somebody said, we really need to move away from allowing ourselves to be be called minority because in reality, we are not. And if we look at, for instance, this year and the work that was done um, to vote uh, Biden and Harris into office, a lot of that was done by BIPOC voters. A lot of that was done by youth voters. A lot of that was done by people who are typically marginalized. And in that same vein, um, in, This Is Major is looking at what it means to um, to own the idea of one's place in this culture. And that that place um, is a major one. It's not a minor role. It's not a minor key. Um, so I also, I, I, I do a lot with music as, you know, as Elena does as well. And so I also like thinking about how minor yeah. keys are often typically sad. Um, and so shifting it into major is also about shifting it into something that is celebratory as opposed to feeling, um, you know, pigeonholed or stifled by my race. Um, it's something that I really want to celebrate and celebrate the story of of Black femininity, Black womanhood and Black girlhood.
4: I just wondered if maybe one of the reasons Shayla has shifted to essays from the poetry books is because of the conversationality of the topic. Not that it's conversational, but that you wanted to have a conversation. Do you think that's why This Is Major is a collection of
2: essays and not, not another poetry collection? Yeah. I think a lot of us poets in 2016 started getting concerned about the ways that language was being used uh, to, to marginalize people. Um, And if we think about how much language has been removed from constitutional amendments to our rights at this point, LGBTQ rights, the rights of immigrants, um, the rights of protesting, the rights, you know, there's there's just so many ways in which this administration has been an administration about the erasure of language in as much as Mm. it's been about the erasure of people. So talking to a lot of poets in watching the election and inauguration in 2016, it just didn't feel that poetry was going to cut it for what we were up against that we needed more words, um, because if they were going to be redacted from the documents that are meant to protect us, somebody else has got to fill them in. So that's how this book ended up being an essay collection. I've always liked essays as a form. Um, poetry fit me because I I, I studied architecture and I, I practiced architecture for a while. So it's a much more visual medium. Um, but I'm really enjoying having that space, like that expansiveness of of an essay to really talk things through.
0: This is Livewire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Passarello. We're talking to Shayla Lawson. Her new book is "This Is Major." Uh, one of the places where a lot of writing now happens, or at least a lot of messages are communicated, is on Twitter. And you write mm-hmm. in this book about Black Twitter. And and please, Shayla, tell me if you feel like it's me asking you to do emotional labor, but you talk about. How from your standpoint, you're not always appreciative of of white folks who consider themselves to be allies using a lot of images of black people as gifts and and ways to make their point online. Just from your perspective, how would you rather see that play out as far as white people interacting with images of black people on places like Twitter?
2: Well, one of the things that I'm creating in the book is the delineation between what allyship looks like in that situation versus what it doesn't, as opposed to these are memes being used by allies, because um, that's not necessarily the case. That's, I think, the first place that we have to start is that we have a long history of using Black images as, uh, as Blackface, this pantomime of the idea of Black culture, and uh, mm-hmm gifs are a place where that continues to happen, that people use the gesture of a physical Black body as a way to describe something that they think of as being funny or that they think of as being relevant or cool without uh, the context of why that image exists. And um, that is just as bad as when uh, it was which we still, you know, we, st- we shouldn't still be having to deal with, uh, with blackface in this country. But it's just as bad mm. of an issue as when people for vaudevillian acts would uh, put on white gloves and paint their faces black and try to pr- pantomime the idea of what they thought blackness was. Um, it's the same kind of move. And I noticed that as a gesture very acutely when I was working in marketing, and notice how often, despite the fact that I was the only um black person who was employed there beyond a temporary contract um, and particularly as a creative um, that every single presentation that we had would be filled with nothing but images of black people so like the gif of oprah celebrating the car gifs from uh different episodes of black Black blackish where the kids are acting sassy you know it was just constantly using these gestures of 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 pictures and images of Black people to represent these ideas about culture. And that's, that's highly disruptive and highly negative because then all you're doing is you're turning these, you're turning these people into memes. Um, and that's exactly mm-hmm. what Blackface was about. It was turning the mm-hmm. idea of, of Black culture, its sound, its cadence, its, its, its dances into something that could be reduced to a stereotype. So if you're using GIFs to perpetuate a, a conversational stereotype, which I, you know, I outlined in the book, the idea of, of the difference between using like a Beyonce GIF in order to uh, recognize Beyonce's actual achievements, you know, there's context because then it's like, here's Beyonce, here's something she actually did. Um, mm-hmm. But then taking a Beyonce GIF and then attaching it, let's say, to like uh, the MeToo movement, when we know that these these places are also spaces that have consciously um, and very dangerously erased Black women, um, in order to privilege the uh, the social damage that has happened to to white faces and, and predominantly richer, whiter, skinnier white people. Um, those Mm -hmm. kinds of things are real issues. And it's something that we don't need to perpetuate in the digital space. Um, It's very similar to how Mm -hmm. I talked about how AI can't see black women because it cannot recognize a dark-skinned female. They do not put enough data into the machines um, for them to be able to delineate between um, a dark-skinned male and a dark-skinned female uh, or a dark-skinned person at all. Sometimes we just are rendered completely invisible and, um, that kind of use of GIFs can do the exact same thing.
0: Um, there's also, uh, I don't know if erasure would be the right term, but there's a sort of a digital relationship uh, as being a woman of color that I would not experience as a white guy. You talk about Tinder and the, mm-hmm. the data on who clicks on whom on Tinder. You're like dipping your toe in the Tinder waters after you get divorced in this book.
2: Yeah. And it is, uh, <laughs> it's a
0: real adventure.
2: Oh, I hate Tinder. I can't stand it.
0: Why don't you like Tinder?
2: Um... I don't like interacting with avatars of people. So when I was, you know, when I was your age kind of thing, but when I (laughs) having to shift from the world where before I met my husband, I would go out and I would meet people and we would connect. And that was how I met my friends. And that's how I started most of my romantic relationships. Um, well, really, all of them, because there was no other way to do it. Um, and then <laughs> to come back into the world and to see the ways that woman had 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 been turned into an even uh, greater commodity, you know, expressly to work in the interest of the whole, like like the Facebook males. I think a lot about how Zadie Smith talks about. Facebook and the social, the social networks that were created by these men who felt disenfranchised and like, as if they had a lack of power, the kind of power that they were supposed to be able to have as white privilege, and the ways that they felt that that was taken away from them because of having to perform in social spaces. So something like an app empowers these men who think of themselves as weak by furthering the idea of women as a commodity. Because Mm -hmm. you just keep swiping through them. And statistically, you know, you could say that, well, everybody's swiping. But the issue is that statistically what happens is that women will swipe for people that they consider might be a possible match for them because of personality or an interest or, you know. But then men are typically swiping to see who is the most stereotypically attractive girl that they can get which also really messes with the algorithm because what it starts to do is if you're a woman who is swiping for people because you're really interested, you're like, Oh, you know, this guy's been places I like, and you know, he might not look like my type, but let me at least try and talk to him. um, It ranks you lower in the algorithm and the matches that you get, get significantly worse. Yeah. Most people don't know this, but this is actually how it works. So let's say you swipe on a seven because Um, he, you know, he went to Cairo and that's something that you're interested in, or you swipe on a five because he's got a cute puppy, then you'll get matches between sevens and fives. You won't get tens, Wow! but guys consistently get the highest scoring women because of the fact that they'll only swipe for the women that are stereotypically looked at as attractive. And so black women are one of those categories of stereotype that are, you know, consistently left out of, um, of those arenas because the whole world has been set up for us to be looked at as second class womanhood, second class citizenship. Um, The same happens with Asian males. And these were both very specific pieces of enslavement and colonization about the ways that our bodies were supposed to function when it comes to Asian males and Black women that is now being played out again when we're looking at the digital space. And that's the thing that makes it scary. Um, Mm -hmm. So before, my issue was with apps was just intimacy. But then the longer that I spent time on them and the more that I started realizing what they were doing, it's actually pretty insidious because we Mm -hmm. are just re Stating these ideas um, surrounding people as commodities that prevents them from finding actual love or connection, and continues to make that search about competition. And at the end of the day, I've never met anybody who was a good match for me through a competition. Um, You know, Mm. I've met them through connection, and I think that was the nice thing about writing the tender essay is that um, me and the person that I went on this date with found um, an actual connection. You know, it was first kind of rooted in us kind of working around the idea of like, okay, like, why do you swipe for, you know, why do you swipe for black girls? What's your deal? Um, and then realizing, you know, that that there was a lot about us that worked. And of course the date was an entire fiasco. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but right. had these really beautiful moments. I mean, it was it sort did. of cinematic <laughs> At points yeah. where, like you know, yeah. I don't want to give anything away, but he's like bringing out some paint, and you guys are you're yeah. getting dangerously close to like ghost when like it was. Denny Moore is <laughs> potting or whatever. It was very artsy and sexy. Uh,
2: Cake is canceled is one of the, the tender chapters, one of the first chapters that I wrote for the book. Mm. Oh, really? And it was it was actually in my proposal. I think it may have been the very first mm. one that I wrote. In fact. um, And uh, yeah, and so it was one of the things that we
0: sold the book on. Uh, Well, Shayla Lawson, thank you again so much for your time.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much, both of you.
0: That was Shayla Lawson joining us as part of the Portland Book Festival back in November. Her book is This Is Major, Notes on Diana Ross, Dark Girls, and Being Dope. Okay, we've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because in a moment, we're gonna be back with some music from Colin Hay. Stay with us. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. And they make one of a kind handcrafted tea blends like Cinnamon Churro Chai and Blueberry Cream Earl Grey. Use the code Livewire, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to the Live Wire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. All right, our musical guest this hour was at one time the lead singer of the Australian band Men at Work. They did that uh, Land from Down Under song, which everybody has heard a million times at this point. Um, Anyway, post Men at Work, Colin Hay has gone on to establish a solo career with a really loyal fan base, uh, which we found out when they showed up and Moss at the Alberta Rose Theatre here in Portland last year when he stopped by to play us some songs. Take a listen to this. It's Colin Hay on Live Wire. What, what song are we going to hear?
5: I'm going to do an old uh, an old song I wrote when I was with Men at Work just so you kind of go, oh, is that that guy? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that guy? Because sometimes I see people in the audience and I haven't played a Men at Work song for a while. I see them turn around to people and they go,
0: Alright, this is Colin Hay on
5: Livewire. I can't get to sleep. I think about the implications of diving in too deep. And possibly the complications, especially at night. I worry over situations I know we'll be all right Perhaps it's just imagination Day after day It reappears Night after night My heartbeat Shows the fear Ghosts appear fade away alone between the sheets only brings exasperation it's time to walk the streets smell the desperation at least there's pretty lights and though there's little variation That nullifies the night From overkill Day after day That reappears Night after night My heartbeat shows. sure And fade away. I can't get to sleep. I think about the implications of diving in too deep and possibly the complications, especially.
0: That was Colin Hay on LiveWire, recorded back in March. His latest album is Fierce Mercy. All right, before we get out of here this week, a little preview of next week's show. We're going to be talking about parents, uh, the good, the bad, the complicated. Uh, we're going to be chatting with writer Danny Shapiro about how a mail-in DNA test revealed a deep-seated family secret. Plus, we're going to hear comedian Chris Garcia channel his hardworking and interesting cuban father and then as always we're going to be getting your answers to our question Uh, the question this week is presented by our marketing manager ariana Donaville. ariana welcome to the show
2: hello hello uh
0: what is the question uh this coming week for the listeners
2: what's the most surprising thing you've learned about your parents
4: oh man
0: That's going to get real.
4: Yeah, I I would like to take this moment to officially ask Tony Passarello and Karen Horton not to listen to the radio next week. Uh, Thanks. Love you guys. Luckily, my
0: parents don't listen, which explains a lot of my issues. So we'll be just fine on that score. But, uh, yeah, that's going to be intense. How should people uh, send in those responses, Ariana?
2: Listeners can submit their answers to our social channels. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Livewire Radio, and we're also on Facebook.
0: Do your parents listen to
2: the show, Ariana? No, they don't, but my neighbors do, <laughs> and they talk to them about it all the time. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> all
0: right, shout out to Ariana's neighbors. Thanks, Ariana. <laughs> all right, that is going to do it for this week's episode of the LiveWire House Party. A huge thanks to our guests, Roman Mars, Kirk Colsted Shayla Lawson, and Colin Hay. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Also, a big thanks this week to Amanda Bullock, and the Portland Book Festival.
4: Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sechenko and Ariana Donoville is our marketing manager. Our house band is Sam Tucker, Ethan Fox Tucker, and A. Walker Spring, who also composed our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixed this episode along with Corey Schreppel
0: additional funding provided by the oregon arts commission a state agency funded by the state of oregon and the national endowment for the arts livewire was created by robin Tenenbaum and kate sokoloff this week we'd like to thank member sarah doan of portland oregon for more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast visit our fancy new website livewireradio.org i'm luke burbank for elena passarello and the whole livewire crew Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.